Several years ago, I was living in Beersheba, Israel. I had organized a Shabbat dinner for my Israeli friends to come to. It was winter, and so I was making borscht. I was keeping Shabbat, so I knew that once the sun went down, I would have to stop cooking and turn everything off. But I didn't give myself enough time. I still had tons of cooking to do, even when it was 15 minutes before Shabbat. What did I do? I pictured all of my guests coming, eating half-cooked soup and hard potatoes, and I just couldn't let that happen. I told myself that Shabbat was a flexible concept, and so I kept the fire on in my kitchen. In short, I broke Shabbat. About an hour later, the guests began to arrive. I grabbed the pot of soup to bring it into the living room to serve to everyone, but a beet had rolled onto the floor. As I walked, holding the soup, I slipped on the beat. Everything came crashing down. I, the pot of soup, and all of my plans for the dinner. I lay on the floor in a giant puddle of bright red borscht. Yet, at that moment, it was my face which was most red of all. Digging away the moments that make up a dull day. Fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Picking around on a piece of ground in your hometown. Waiting for some. I learned a valuable lesson on that Shabbat evening. When you break the commandments, the mitzvot, God will punish you somehow, some way. Indeed, I can safely say that I felt God's wrath, his unbridled wrath on that fateful evening. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that God saw me cooking past sunset and decided, I'm going to make Steve slip on a beat and teach him a lesson. But it could be instead that the laws of Shabbat have their own logic that I shouldn't have been cooking past dark, as I couldn't see as well in my kitchen, I couldn't see the red beet on the floor, or that I should have prepared better and gave myself more time. Shabbat teaches us not to rush, and here I was, rushing. If we push ourselves over the limit, if we continue to work on Shabbat, we will bear the consequences. Shabbat will raise its fist up to us, and God will most certainly be watching. Yet, Dear Shrift listeners, there's just one problem with the story I've told you. None of it was true. Well, I shouldn't say that none of it was true. All of it was true, actually, except for the last part. There was no beat on the floor. I didn't slip. I wasn't covered head to toe in a pot of steaming hot borscht. Actually, nothing happened. I broke Shabbat. My friends came, the borscht was delicious, we all had a good time, and everyone went home. I felt a bit guilty afterward for breaking Shabbat, but eventually I got over it. This is the problem with the mitzvot. There's no policeman or court enforcing them. Everyone kind of knows that if they break the commandments, nothing will actually happen to them. Now, there is the argument that the mitzvot have contained within them their own internal logic, 
If you follow them, you'll be blessed and be happier. I believe this is true to an extent. After all, fasting one day a year is good for your mind and body. Resting one day out of seven is extremely healthy and important. Not gorging yourself with all kinds of different animal meat mixed with dairy products is beneficial to you and the environment. And obviously, it's good for you and for society not to steal, murder, commit adultery, and so forth. But I have seen the Haredim who keep the mitzvot 1,000 times more than secular Jews ever have. They painstakingly, fastidiously, obsessively observe every commandment and all of the sub-sub-sub-commandments of these originals. I am not sure I can say that they are happier, more fulfilled, or more at peace. If you've watched the shows Shtisel, or Unorthodox, you know that the far-right Orthodox have their own set of problems and their own dissatisfaction. Yet, having said that, it wouldn't kill the secular Jews out there to keep a few more of the mitzvot. I do believe that keeping the commandments is to your benefit, leaving aside the whole part about their being ordained by God and all, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Some will argue that the mitzvot function on the macro level, on the Jewish people as a whole. God punishes all Jews, even if only a handful disobey. Or even if you don't believe God himself comes down to smite us, the argument could be made that when some Jews are disobeying the laws, the entire community is out of sync, out of harmony, such that everyone feels the consequences. I remember speaking to a very religious friend of mine once. He basically gave the impression that God was with him at every moment, that God was in constant communication with him. So I asked him the natural question, what about the Holocaust? How can you believe in God if he let the Holocaust happen? My friend answered very matter-of-factly, Jewish history is filled with examples where God punishes us if some of the community stop obeying the mitzvot. In a way, he was correct. As I've discussed before, the German Jews more or less blatantly flouted and mocked Judaism in the 19th and 20th century. They began eating pork, getting baptized, working on Saturday, and so forth. My religious friend would have said that the Holocaust was a punishment for this. And even if you don't think God himself said, I am now going to punish the Jews of Europe, you could argue that the German Jews' treasonous behavior poisoned and weakened the Jewish community at large. All of the Jews, the millions in Poland and Russia, even though they had nothing to do with the Jews of Germany, were therefore punished along with the treasonous German Jews. You can say that they were punished by God or by the internal logic of the mitzvot. Either way, it amounts to the same thing. The problem with this theory, however, is that if this were the case, there would be another apocalypse today. Have you ever been to Tel Aviv? Seen the tattoos? Eaten the cheeseburgers? Rode on a moped on a Friday night to a rave on the beach? Granted, the Tel Aviv Jews are nowhere near as bad as the German Jews were. Though many of them are avowed atheists, none of them, so far as I can tell, are getting baptized, and not too many are intermarrying. Obviously, assimilation is also not a problem, as they live in a Jewish state. But still, we are going to soon discuss what God said he would do to the Israelites if they didn't follow the commandments. And I can't imagine that secular Judaism today would have made God significantly more or less angry than during the 19th and 20th century. And this is to say nothing of the Roman era, the Babylonian era, and the countless other times when Jews have misbehaved. It used to be that we viewed suffering as divine intervention. But, as I showed with the soup example, people generally don't see their lives that way anymore. 
we, as humans, have kind of figured out that we can do immoral things and God won't smite us for it, at least not right away. Yet, we have substituted this divine intervention with the idea that the universe intervenes or that the way of the world intervenes. This is the point that Dostoevsky wished to make in his novel, Crime and Punishment, written in 1864. In Crime and Punishment, the protagonist, Raskolnikov, believes that morality is just a concept. It doesn't really exist. And so, in order to prove that he is above morality, he murders his landlady and another woman who happens to be there at the time. Raskolnikov expects to walk away from the murder and just go back to his life as before, albeit with a bit more money. But no, instead, guilt begins to creep in. How could I murder those two old women? But they were just meaningless specks in society. But still, two old women. And the blood. So much blood. What have I done? Nothing. You did nothing wrong. The guilt gets stronger and stronger. Raskolnikov slowly loses the will to rationalize the murder. Eventually, he confesses, becomes a devout Christian, and at last achieves peace, marrying a prostitute named Sonia along the way. Dostoevsky's point here is rather straightforward. If you mess with morality, it will mess with you. If you mess with God's commandments, you're going to get punished, hence the title of the book, Crime and Punishment. But God is not going to come down from heaven and punish you. No. Instead, the universe is constructed so that these commandments have their own internal logic. Put another way, God will not punish you. Rather, the commandments themselves will punish you. Morality will punish you. By committing murder, Raskolnikov felt the punishment of extreme, harrowing, haunting guilt, and he could not escape it. So the logic goes that if the Jews start breaking the commandments, breaking the laws, maybe God won't come down and smite us, but the very breach of the commandments will smite us. I do believe this is true to an extent. Intermarrying, getting baptized, flying on planes on Shabbat, eating whatever the hell you want at any time, None of these are very good for the Jewish people, and history has shown that. But only to an extent. After all, I broke Shabbat to serve my friend's borscht, and everyone had a great time. Why didn't I fall onto the floor in a puddle of soup? Why does Tel Aviv have the best club scene in the world? Moreover, does anyone really think the world would be a better place if everyone became Karadim and kept each commandment to a T? You are listening to The Shrift, episode 29, Bahar Kotai. would very cynically deal with this question in his 1989 film, Crimes and Misdemeanors. This film is a kind of response to Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. In this film, the main character is named Judah, and I'll leave it up to you to decide why Woody Allen has named him Judah. Anyway, Judah is having an affair with a flight attendant named Dolores. Judah is a respectable family man, 
When he tells Dolores he's going to end the affair, Dolores becomes very upset. She threatens to tell Judah's wife about the affair and basically ruins ruin Judah's life and reputation. Judah's therapist advises him to come clean with his wife and work through the unfathomable damage it will cause to his life. But instead, Judah decides to have Dolores murdered. He has her murdered by a hitman so that no one will ever know about his affair. And so, Dolores is murdered. Like Raskolnikov of Crime and Punishment, after the murder, Judah is racked by guilt. Like Raskolnikov, he turns to religion and believes that God is judging him and punishing him. Like Raskolnikov, he contemplates confessing and purging himself from his sin. Yet, here is where the comparisons stop. Unlike Raskolnikov, Judah never quite gets around to confessing. A few years pass by, and then we see Judah again, living a happy life with his family. He learns that some homeless person has been convicted for the murder of Dolores. Most importantly, in the final scene of the film, Judas says that he kind of just slowly forgot about the whole thing, about the whole murder. Life moved on. The guilt slowly dissipated. Meanwhile, Dolores lies in her grave, and Judah gets to continue enjoying life. No punishment, neither from God, nor from the court, nor even from Dostoevsky's idea of built-in guilt to violations of absolute morality. Cynically, the message of Woody Allen's film seems to be, if you can get away with it, and you can deal with the short-term guilt, you should do it. And you wonder why the whole world hates Woody Allen. Can I apply this message to myself with the Shabbat dinner borscht? I was able to break Shabbat, not get punished, have a great meal with my friends. Sure, I felt a bit guilty about it, but that passed. In the Parsha for this week, we get one of the most intimidating, frightening, harrowing messages from God. This is the message of what will happen to the Hebrews if they do not follow the commandments. The speech begins calmly and optimistically. It relays all of the good things which will happen to the Hebrews if they do follow the laws. God says, If you follow my laws and observe my mitzvot, I will give you your rains in their time. The land will yield its produce, and the tree of the field will give forth its fruit. I will turn toward you, and I will make you fruitful and increase you, and I will establish my bond with you. Many people are at least a bit familiar with Dante's poem, The Inferno, written circa 1300. It has given us the famous lines, Midway upon life's journey, I found myself lost within a forest dark, and abandon all hope, ye who enter here. The Inferno takes readers into the depths of hell, and Dante gives us the most terrifying, lurid, sensational descriptions of the fire, the ghouls, the tortures of the underworld. Yet, Dante's Inferno was only one part of a three-part epic poem known as the Divine Comedy. After taking us through hell, Dante brings us up into purgatory, purgatorio, and then finally into heaven, paradiso. Yet, most people just read the Inferno part. The other two sections of the poem are by far less famous. Why? Because it makes for much more riveting literature to describe the negative rather than the positive. We are much more drawn to poetry, which is terrifying and haunting, than that which is uplifting. And here I mean uplifting quite literally. It is simply much easier and more compelling to read depictions of hell than depictions of heaven. And the Torah plays the same game as Dante. 
this nice little passage about all the good things which will happen to the Israelites is, relatively speaking, rather short. But the subsequent passage on all the bad things which will happen if the Israelites disobey God's commands is long. It is seemingly endlessly long. It is passionate and gripping. What happens if the Israelites disobey? Here is what the Torah, Torah tells us. I will order upon you shock, consumption, fever, and diseases that cause hopeless longing and depression. I will incite the plague in your midst, and you will be delivered into the enemy's hands. You will eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters you will eat, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you. Your land will be desolate, and your cities will be laid waste. It continues to go on like that for a while. How should we understand this speech, this diatribe? Obviously, one way would be to get really freaked out and make sure we do everything God says. Otherwise, we'll feel his wrath. Yet, people don't tend to take this warning seriously. People kind of know that they can get away with stuff. Even children know that they can be bad and they'll probably still get presents on Christmas. I kind of knew that even if I continued to make the borscht after Shabbat, nothing bad would happen to me. The second way to understand this, this speech would be to say, okay, as Jews, these laws have an internal logic. If we don't follow them as a group, we will end up in exile in Babylon, or enslaved by the Romans, or put in concentration camps, or attending a wedding ceremony where a priest and a reformed rabbi stand side by side, and shrimp is served as an hors d'oeuvre. While I believe this is true to an extent, there are far too many exceptions and injustices under this view to take it at face value. A third approach to this speech would be just to say, it's an empty threat. It means nothing. Yes, I will take bacon on my cheeseburger. I will mow the lawn on Shabbat. Nothing's going to happen. I would like to propose, however, a fourth way. Woody Allen was not the only Jew to respond to Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment. Another was Franz Kafka in his novel, The Trial. The main character, Joseph K., wakes up one morning to find himself under arrest. Yet, unlike Raskolnikov, who committed a double murder, Joseph K. hasn't committed any crime. The officers who arrest him even tell him that the court is not a governmental court. Moreover, Joseph K. is not to be restricted in any way. He can go on living his life exactly as before. Yet, this is not enough for Joseph K. He still somehow feels guilty, but he doesn't know why or for what reason. This seems to him senseless. Why should he be arrested if he didn't do anything wrong? Why does he have unidentified guilt? Kay's strategy to this arrest is just to keep telling himself that he is innocent, absolutely innocent. But we as readers don't really believe the words after a while. Even Kay doesn't seem to believe his own words. Ironically, he ends up feeling just as guilty as Raskolnikov. But Raskolnikov was a murderer, and Kay is just a well-behaved banker. When we read Crime and Punishment, we want Raskolnikov to confess his crime, to relieve himself of the burden caused by his guilt. Interestingly, when we read the trial, we have the same reaction toward Joseph K. Stop saying you're innocent, just admit it, you're guilty. But to the reader's frustration, Joseph K. always refuses. What the trial teaches us, I think, is that there's a certain power which comes from taking responsibility. We tend to think that if we profess ourselves to be blameless, then this will strengthen us. 
but refusing to point the finger at ourselves, in fact, weakens us. In every situation, one can always find an excuse for one's actions. One can always put the blame elsewhere. But when you try to always maintain your innocence, always to try to exonerate yourself, as Kay did, you give up your freedom. You become a kind of slave to your own mind. You feel the need to continually appease the part of your mind which doesn't want to feel guilty. To say instead, whatever happens, I am responsible, is not a burdensome statement. Rather, it is a liberating one. Moreover, for the Jewish people and for humanity as a whole, if we can say, whatever happens, we are responsible, is not burdensome, but liberating. Why? Because when you allow yourself to take complete responsibility for whatever happens, you no longer need to struggle with your mind as to who is to blame, who is guilty, why this happened. Moreover, this mentality also frees you up and inspires you to create change, to see every predicament as an opportunity to ask yourself, how can I make this better? How can I take responsibility for the situation and then bring about improvement? This, I think, is the way we should read this passage from the Torah, the fourth way, the empowering way. The reason it is written so shockingly, with so much fear-mongering, if you will, is because this language encourages us to look inward when things go wrong or when things go right. The Torah wants to encourage us to engage in relentless soul-searching, to continually ask why fortune and fate are treating us the way they do, to ask what we can do to alter the course of this alleged fortune. If there's no, say, wheat growing in your field, don't blame others. Don't blame God. Don't blame the weather. Instead, take responsibility. Ask what can be done differently. If you or your people are scattered somewhere in the world, don't just accept that. Take responsibility and ask, why are we scattered? Why are we dispersed? Why am I somewhere I don't want to be? And then ask yourself, is there a commandment or a law or a moral code or a mantra that I am breaking? How might following this mantra better allow me to improve, to free myself from the curse which has befallen me? But the trial is a novel which is a double-edged sword. It is not just about taking full responsibility. Because if we are constantly pointing the finger at ourselves, heaping guilt upon ourselves, endlessly self-flagellating, that is also bad. That is just as bad and is in a way the same thing as doggedly maintaining your innocence. On one hand, Joseph K. was too obsessed with never taking responsibility. But on the other hand, he was equally obsessed with seeing guilt and wrongdoing in every one of his actions. Both cases lead to self-torment. The way out of this paradox, I think, is to combine self-responsibility with self-compassion. The problem with Joseph K. is that his inner monologue was like a debate between two lawyers before a man who was on trial. The prosecutor of his mind was saying, you are absolutely guilty. The defense attorney of his mind was saying, you are absolutely innocent. Instead, we need to talk to ourselves compassionately, as we would talk to a friend. If something goes wrong, don't blame yourself the way a lawyer would blame the other side. Instead, take responsibility, but not in a violent, self-lacerating way, but in a kind and loving way. Acknowledge that you are doing a very difficult thing by being human, and that, even if it's your responsibility, it's not your fault. Arguably, the reason Joseph K. could never take responsibility is because he lacked this self-compassion. He knew that if he were to ever blame himself, 
he could not do so without condemning his entire being. And if you go back to episode one of the shrift, you know that any kind of judgment or condemnation or criticism of oneself is the equivalent of shame. And shame is an emotion that we, as humans, want to avoid at all costs. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus sums up the idea of this episode well in the following quote, an immature person will blame everyone else for his or her problems. A sign of progress is when, instead of blaming others, you blame yourself. Yet, when you truly become wise, when you truly become enlightened, you will never have to blame others or yourself. Early one morning while making the rounds I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down I went right home and I went to bed I stuck at 11.44 beneath my head Got up next morning and I grabbed that gun Took a shot of cocaine and away I run Made a good run but I run too slow They overtook me down in Juarez, Mexico Laid in the hot joints, taking the pills And walked the sheriff from Jericho Hill He said, Willie Lee, your name is not Jack Brown You're the dirty hack that shot your woman down Yes, so oh yes, my name is Willie Lee If you've got a warrant just to read it to me Shut her down because she made me slow I thought I was her daddy, but she had five more When I was arrested, I was dressed in black They put me on a train and they took me back Had no friend for to go my bail They slapped my dieter carcass in that county jail Early next morning about a half past nine I spied a sheriff coming down the line Up then he coughed as he cleared his throat He said, put on you dirty hack into that district court Into the courtroom my trial began Where I was handled by twelve honest men Just before the jury started out I saw that little judge come as to look about in about five minutes and walked a man Holding the verdict in his right hand The verdict read in the first degree I hollered, Lordy, Lordy, have mercy on me The judge, he smiled as he picked up his pen Ninety-nine years in the Folsom pen Ninety-nine years underneath that ground I can't forget today I shut that bad bitch down Come on, you gotta listen unto me Lay off that whiskey and let that cocaine be These men have receptions, Matlock, A50632 And Batshelder, A39 Eight seven nine. They have receptions. <laughs> yeah, I doubt that. <laughs>